Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being with me. I saw a new study this morning from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Um, It found that just a little over one-third of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. Now, not a lot of details were given. I suspect that these were primarily Protestant pastors they had in mind. Um, But I, however you want to slice it, the numbers look bad. You know, uh, Christian pastors are supposed to be the champions of a Christian view of things. And if the champions don't understand what it means to have a biblical approach to life, we're in trouble. Um, Worldview, by the way, is a word that came into vogue in America over a generation ago. And what it means is assumptions, a person's assumptions about life. Um, uh, It's the assumptions that answer basic questions, okay? A person might not even be conscious of their worldview. I mean, I had an uncle who, in my experience, never had a philosophical or religious conversation. But I heard him shout one day when he, his wife mentioned something about reincarnation. He shouted, when you're dead, you're dead. Well, it turns out my uncle was a philosopher after all. I mean, at least he had some assumptions about the human person and what becomes of him after death. So one needn't be conscious of one's worldview, but everyone has one. Everyone has a set of assumptions how conscious they are of them, how philosophically sophisticated they are, uh, doesn't have much to do with it. But one's worldview answers basic questions. Who am I? Where am I? What's wrong with this place? And what can make things right? So it's like, who am I in the grand scheme of things? Uh, Where do we come from? Where are we going? where am I? Uh, what is this place? What's this world? What, what's it made of? Uh, what's its direction? Is it progressing? Is it recycling? What's going on? Uh, it answers questions about what's wrong. How come things don't work out the way I think they ought to work out? Why is it that uh, what I think is good doesn't get rewarded? What's wrong with this place? And then what can bring, what can fix things? What's, what Who has the power? What has the power to make things right? Those are basic assumptions. And let me point out why it's dangerous if our nation's pastors don't have a conscious biblical worldview. You know, America is becoming increasingly divided over the nature of the human person. On the one side are those, like me, like most of you, who accept that human beings are divinely created, They have a permanent essence or a permanent nature. They possess inalienable rights and dignity. This is the historic position of Christians, Jews, some Muslims, and some humanists. And, you know, we're not sitting around waiting for the next phase in the making of human nature. It's it's largely fixed. While Christians believe, of course, that the God who created us can also recreate us, that's not a matter of human tinkering or natural forces, Okay. For a Christian, personalities can develop, they can mature, virtues can be acquired. But what started out as a human person, homo sapiens, doesn't end up as something less or something more. It's just another human being. Human nature is pretty much fixed. It's stable. The result of divine creation. In contrast, the other side regards the human being as most definitely not the result of divine design. 
The other side believes that human beings are merely the result of undirected, blind, natural forces with no prevision of the end they were achieving. Homo sapiens just happens to be one stop midway between Homo erectus and Homo whatever, uh, technologicus, uh, Homo hedonisticus, I don't know, whatever it's going to be in the future. Nobody knows. And these are actually very practical issues. Let me tell you why. When we talk about politics, we talk about government. What's the best form of government? Or as Aristotle put it, how should we order our lives together? We have to ask, who are the we? Uh, What's the nature of the we? Government's about governing people. Fine. Okay. But what are people for? In other words, how we regard the nature of the human person will have a lot to do with what forms of government we prefer. Are human beings created by God with a a destiny? Are they the product of natural forces that had, you know, just a blind future in mind? Do human beings possess free will? Are they rational? Do they possess meaning and purpose? Okay. Let me stress that questions about worldview are so practical that we might overlook them. So, for instance, in the 20th century, we saw governments that deliberately and for ideological reasons defied the Christian view of things. We saw this in the 70-year experiment of atheistic Soviet Union. We saw the much shorter experiment of the so-called Third Reich, the fascist Nazi regime. What were the worldviews underlying these regimes? Well, start, of course, by asking, how did they regard human nature? The Soviets regarded human beings as purely materialistic products with no intrinsic worth or dignity. They were workers made for the state, for the collective, and they possessed no intrinsic individual dignity or worth. This is what made the creation of the gulag so easy and inevitable. When human beings didn't fit the mold, they needed to be shipped off for re-education or punishment. For the Nazis again, Human beings are purely materialistic products, but for Nazis, their racial characteristics were the most important. How the human could or could not contribute to the purifying of the Aryan race. That's what determined how government would treat them. So our worldview answers questions about who we are, uh, where we came from, and where we may be going. And, of course, how we should be treated. Since the last third of the 19th century, we've seen the slow rise of a popular worldview that's challenged the Christian view of things. Sometimes it's called secular evolutionary humanism. I'm just going to call it evolutionism, all right? Now, it's rooted in scientific materialism, but it becomes very unscientific quickly, and it smuggles in answers to questions that science can't really answer. It tries to take a biological theory and turn it into a cosmic story, a story of our origin and destiny filled with meaning, morality, and purpose. British philosopher Mary Midgley mocked this uh, and said, quote, Evolution is the creation myth of our age. By telling us our origins, it shapes our views of what we are. It influences not just our thoughts, but also our feelings and actions in a way that goes far beyond its official function as a biological theory. Evolutionism functions as a religion, as a philosophy, as a myth, because it tries to answer questions of ultimate concern that are normally associated with religion and philosophy. These are questions that go beyond science's ability to answer. And since science cannot strictly answer these questions, 
people end up smuggling in answers from other philosophies or theologies or religions dressed up in scientific or pseudoscientific vocabulary. Evolution as a biological theory is quite limited. It cannot tell us how matter came to be. It cannot tell us what human life means or what's the purpose of our existence or what's our destiny. These are all philosophical questions that science cannot really address because the questions ask for answers beyond the reach of science. C.S. Lewis wrote long ago, I do not mean that the doctrine of evolution, as held by practicing biologists, is a myth. It is a genuine scientific hypothesis. But we must sharply distinguish between evolution as a biological theorem and popular evolutionism, which is certainly a myth. And then Lewis went on to give examples of evolutionism long before Darwin's biological theory. Edward O. Wilson, the founder of sociobiology, now called evolutionary psychology, wrote back in 1975 that, quote, scientific materialism is itself a mythology defined in the noble sense. The core of scientific materialism is the evolutionary epic or story, probably the best myth we will ever have. Now, this is actually funny. Evolutionism, indeed, is a grand cosmic story or myth. It's a grand meta-narrative, as people say. But wait a minute. Science doesn't tell stories. Science answers questions about particular material phenomena, stuff that can be measured, observed, reproduced. Science doesn't deal with questions of meaning or morality. Now, scientism is the widely recognized abuse of science, like I point out in my book, Dangerous to the Faith, But scientific method is simply not capable of answering all questions of importance to human beings. Scientism is a common problem, and when pointed out, it is commonly laughed at. British philosopher John Gray, for instance, has been unrelenting in mocking those who claim they have a scientific worldview, but keep trying to smuggle in Christian positions like the dignity of the human person. Science is great. Science gives us a lot. Science saves lives, but science can't tell us why lives are worth saving. Science can't tell us what lives have dignity and which don't. Questions of value, questions of worth, questions of significance are not scientific questions. They're philosophical or theological questions. Evolution, looking here, just uh, Michael Roos is a philosopher of science. He's a vocal defender of biological evolution as science. But he regularly blows the whistle on those who try to turn the scientific theory of evolution into a surrogate religion of evolutionism. He complains that too often, quote, evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. This was true of evolution in its beginning, and it's true of evolution still today, and it's wrong. I'll give you a quick example here. Molecular biologist William Day, uh, his expertise was examining the chemical origins of life. And he wrote a book called Genesis on Planet Earth, The Search for Life's Beginning. Now, it is a valuable exercise to try and determine the chemical components and compounds of human existence and what emerges when chemicals come together under certain circumstances in primeval conditions, right? But William Day, not content with the science of it, had to try to create a a new mythology about the next phase of human existence. So listen to this. 
And you'll see just how unscientific the language is. Quote, A new species, Omega Man, will emerge. It is reasonable to assume that man's intellect merely represents a stage intermediate between the primates and Omega Man. Well, it might be reasonable to assume that, but it's not scientific. If you think man is not a finished product, but is waiting for some new phase of evolution, you're entitled to that belief. But there's nothing in science that points to what human beings are to be in some new phase of our existence. It's purely human conjecture. One major problem with pastors not being grounded in the biblical view of the world is that they may be tempted to side with those who will implement dehumanizing policies to give us the new man.